0: Wednesday, we connected a little bit, a little bit at uh, Lakeside Park yesterday. Awesome to meet you in person. Uh, I know you and Lydia are like BFFs, and so you come highly acclaimed through those channels. Uh, Deanna, want to welcome you to our church, and really excited to uh, hear what you have to share with us this morning. Let's welcome Deanna. Thank you. Good morning. Wow, it's so good to be here, you guys. (laughs) Um, I'm really excited to share with you. Um, As Jeff mentioned, uh, we arrived on Friday. Um, Had a little bit of a hiccup with the border crossing, but we got here. It was just a little later than we expected. All good. And um, yeah, we'll be here through Wednesday. Yesterday, we were at Lakeside Beach for a little while. got to meet Jeff and his family. And um, also walked through Nelson, got to visit the Farmer's Market. It was just really, really great first day in Nelson. So excited to be here. Um, Two weeks ago, I introduced myself and my daughter to you. And we have a life update since then. Um, So in the middle here, we added another girl to the family. And this is Arlie. She is a -a -a one-and-a-half-year-old sheepadoodle. I recorded the message you guys watched a couple weeks prior to you watching it, so I've had her for just about a month, and she has been so much fun for us to get to know, and we are enjoying having a four-legged person in our family now. Um, Today we're going to be in the book of Esther, so if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and open to Esther. Um, We'll be beginning in chapter 3. Just as I have a life update from two weeks ago, from what we studied in 1 Samuel to the book of Esther, the Israelites have a life update. Um, So we talked last time about um, Saul going out to fight against the Amalekites and how he spared the life of King Agag. Between then and the book of Esther, we have Saul is followed by David, David's kingdom is followed by the King Solomon. And after King Solomon, the nation of Israel divides. And so we have a period of time of the divided kingdom. The northern tribes never follow the ways of the Lord. And so they are taken captive by the Assyrians. The southern tribes, they are sometimes following God and sometimes not following God. And ultimately, they are also taken captive by the Babylonians. Both the Assyrians and the Babylonians are eventually taken captive by the Persians. And so when we go to the book of Esther, we're in the time of Persian rule throughout the land. And um, one of the good things that happens under the rule of Persia is that there's a king who arises, Cyrus, who allows a large group of Jews to return back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And they can worship Yahweh in the temple in Jerusalem once again. And so this happens after that, and there's scholarly debate whether or not Esther is before or after they rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. Um, But regardless, I consider the book of Esther to be the chronological capstone of the Old Testament of the Jewish narrative in the Old Testament. Now, despite many Israelites having returned to Jerusalem, the author of Esther, and when I say author, I'm referring to both the human author who wrote the words and the divine author being God, but just the way that the story is crafted for us, um, we are never once is our attention taken to Jerusalem. Our attention in the book of Esther is entirely in Susa, which is the capital of Persia, to the events happening in the palace, and only the events that pertain to two individuals who follow the ordin- and honor the ordinances of God. That's Mordecai and Esther. Now, I have to pause for a moment before I dive in too deeply because I love the book of Esther. It is one of the most fascinating books in the Bible. Um, In my mind, it's the one that has the most emotion behind it. And so if you haven't read Esther recently, I challenge you to find an hour or two. And if you can read the whole book, start to finish. It has everything. You have irony, you have plot, you have plot twists, you have suspense, there's secrets, there's spies, and there's a love story. So find some time. That's my challenge to you because I will not be able to go through everything that's in there. In addition to being the capstone of the Jewish canon, it's also just a literary masterpiece, and I think you'll enjoy it. Um, But I'm gonna focus in to one part of the story of Esther and some of the threads that lead us up to that climax and resolution. So in chapter one, the author begins by narrating a story about how the position of queen was vacated. But as we continue on reading in the book of Esther, we reflect back to chapter one because chapter one does a few things for us. One is that it gives us a profile of the king. Two, it gives us the how and why is Esther raised to be queen. Three, it gives us a profile of the kingdom. How what's the culture and life like in the Persian rule, and it also serves to tell us how truly insignificant it was for Esther to be chosen as queen. Because we live in 2023 and we hear queen, Esther was queen, wow, that had to have power, that had to have prestige and honor, and how exciting. Because we think of Queen Elizabeth and Queen Victoria and maybe even Catherine the Great and these powerful women who served as queen. But that's not what we're shown in chapter one. Chapter 1, we find that one small misstep, and you can be banished from the kingdom forever. Chapter 2 is where the author introduces us to Esther. Esther is a Jewish orphan, and she's living in the land of Persia, being cared for by her cousin Mordecai. She's taken into the king's harem, and Mordecai instructs her, Shh, don't tell anyone you're a Jew and she honors that request. I read this, and I expect bad to get to worse. She's supposedly an innocent little girl, and both of her parents die, and now she's taken to the king's harem? What more can go wrong? But it does go wrong. It goes very wrong. Because in chapter 3, Haman, and Agagite, gets the king's permission to annihilate the Jews. Read with me, In chapter 3, verse 8. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all other people, and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them. And I, will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. The king agrees. Without hesitation, he hands over his authority on the matter to Haman. Haman is given the ability and power to do whatever he wants to this certain people. Now, this is where I can get really, like, hung up on details, because I wonder what else happened in this conversation. He doesn't name who the certain people was. Did the king even ask? Did he even say, like, who are these people that I'm going to just let you go off and kill? But this fits the profile that we saw in chapter one. Without hesitation, this king is a king who follows the advice of his advisors. And just like in chapter one, here again, he will come to deeply regret that decision. Mordecai, Esther's cousin, finds out about the decree to annihilate the Jews before Esther, and he goes to the king's gate, dressed in sackcloth, dousing himself in ashes. Esther sends one of her attendants to go and find out why Mordecai is covered in sackcloth and ashes, and Mordecai sends back a copy of the edict and tells the attendant to instruct Esther to go to the king and plead for her people. Now, again, we live in 2023. This seems so simple to us. Hey, Lydia, go ask me for help. Right? Go ask your husband for help. How simple can it be? But because we also have to pause and we have to go back to chapter one and we have to say, wait a second. I already know that that didn't work out so well for the last queen. She lost her position. By doing what? By not following through with something that the king asked her to do. But she didn't break a law. And now we find out that what Mordecai is asking Esther to do is against the law. So flip with me to chapter 4. We're going to read in verse 10. Then Esther instructed her attendant to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But thirty days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all of the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, that you and your family's, father's family will perish. And who knows that, that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. I'm going to pause for just a second here because I love Mordecai's response. He puts the responsibility for saving the Jews where it belongs. It's not on Esther, it's on God. If you don't step up, that's okay. Relief and deliverance will come because Mordecai knows who the Jews are. He knows that there has been a covenant promise to Abraham and all his descendants forever. God won't let us be annihilated. We're his chosen people, and I know God will come through for us. But Esther, here's your chance. Do you want to be a participant in this answer? Do you want to be involved in the work that God is doing? Continuing on, verse 15, then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Three days pass, and the day arrives. I can only imagine the deep breath Esther would have taken as she mustered all of her courage to enter into the king's court. Everyone in the room gasps, holding their breath as they watch her cross the threshold to enter in. They wait to see what will the king do. He extends the scepter, pardoning the queen's life. You can almost hear the collective (sighs) Instead of pleading the king for her people in that moment, she invites the king and Haman to a banquet that evening. Then she asks them to return to have another banquet the following night. Now, this is where I have to stop myself because I really, really want to tell you guys what happens between these two banquets, but you're just going to have to go and read it for yourself. Um, it's so cool to watch how God is in control in the most bewildering circumstances. And if you're anything like me, I read the story, the part of the story in between, and I go, Esther, why did you delay? If you wouldn't have delayed, then Mordecai's life wouldn't be in danger. But ultimately, Mordecai's life is saved. And on the second night, The king and Haman, they come to the second banquet, and Esther finally tells the king, I am a Jew, and Haman has asked to kill me and annihilate my people. The king is outraged. Haman is hung on the gallows. Now, In my video a couple weeks ago, I left a bigger than anticipated cliffhanger. In the story of Saul, God is calling on Saul to annihilate an entire people group because of an action taken by their king centuries earlier in ancient history. It stands in sharp contradiction to when God says anyone who believes in Christ will not perish but have everlasting life. And here, now, the Jews are at risk of being annihilated, the very thing God ordained against the Amalekites. Did God set the stage by introducing the concept of annihilation? How can it be okay to annihilate one people group but not another? These are the questions that I wrestle with. And like I mentioned last time, I have to check myself and stop my pride and say, I have to trust that God knows what he's doing. And I'm not claiming to have all the answers. And there's probably many ways to look at this issue. But what has given me peace is looking at the way God shows up throughout scripture on this topic. Because the same God who declared the annihilation of the Amalekites is the same God who said, Am I going to hide from Abraham the thing I'm about to do? No, no, no. I'm going to tell him. I'm going to tell him I'm about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And he allowed Abraham to negotiate with him all the way down to, If you find ten righteous in the city, will you spare the entire city? And God said, Yes. And for Abraham, that was good enough. But the reality is, God did not find ten righteous. And while he did destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, he also pulled out righteous Lot and his daughters, and he spared them before the destruction. This shows us how much God cares about each individual. God cares about individual hearts. And in his declaration to annihilate the Amalekites, he knew what he was talking about. Why? It's not just a simple word. Sovereignty. Though I love sovereignty, and I'm so glad God is sovereign. It's because he is God. God knows how to rescue the righteous and destroy the wicked. He did it with Lot in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. He did it with Rahab in the destruction of Jericho. He did it with me. He's done it with you. And he did it with the Canaanites in 1 Samuel 15. I skipped a couple of verses a couple of weeks ago because I was staying focused on that message, but I want to point them out to you now. Um, this is 1 Samuel 15, beginning in verse 5. Saul went to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the ravine. Then he said to the Kenites, Go away, leave the Amalekites, so that I do not destroy you along with them. For you showed kindness to the Israelites when they came out of Egypt. So the Kenites moved away from the Amalekites. Then, and only then, did Saul attack. When we get to the book of Esther... Something shifts. Esther and Mordecai are given the authority to write an edict in any way they want. The story could end, and the way I would end it, is we're going to beat them to the punch. We're supposed to get annihilated on the, I don't remember the day, the 15th. I'm going to annihilate them on the 13th. That's the way I would have written the edict. But that's not the way that Mordecai and Esther write it. So flip with me to chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 5. If it pleases the king, she said, and if he regards me with favor and thinks it right, the right thing to do, and if he is pleased with me, Let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. For how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? King Xerxes replied to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Because Haman attacked the Jews, I have given his estate to Esther, and they have impaled him on the pole he set up. Now, write another... Decree in the king's name on behalf of the Jews as seems best to you and seal it with the king's signet ring, for no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. Uh, Skipping down to verse 11, the king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves, to destroy, to kill, and annihilate the armed men of any nationality or province who might attack them and their women and children and to plunder the property of their enemies. The day appointed arrived, and the Jews were victorious. Chapter 9 tells us that they destroyed a total of 800 enemies of the Jews in the capital of Susa. Who is God? When it comes to a theology of annihilation, where does God fit in? And can he be trusted? One of the things that I left out is the connection between what I talked about two weeks ago in 1 Samuel 15 and Esther. Because last time I mentioned how the people that Saul was asked to go and annihilate Was because of some events that happened back in Numbers. And it was a king, a king Amalek, who went out to fight against the Israelites. And his people eventually became known during the time of Judges as the Amalekites, the Amalekites. And they were ruled by a king named Agag. And sometime, In the period of the divided kingdom or the conquered kingdom, the people were no longer known as the Amalekites, but the Agagites. These are descendants of the king whom whom Saul spared. And I will also mention Mordecai. His genealogy is given us in chapter 2, and he is a descendant of Saul's father, Kish. So when we go to, there was a song we sang earlier about how God is faithful. And I see God's faithfulness in this because I see how he finished, he was faithful to finish what he needed to happen. So cool. So the first thing we can notice Is God's sovereignty. He knows what he's doing and he knows what's to come centuries later, how the actions of today shape the circumstances of tomorrow, how if Saul had been successful against the Amalekites in verse Samuel, then the Jews would never have been at risk of annihilation in Esther. He's sovereign. The second thing we can notice is his individual care. What started as the destruction of two cities ended with the destruction only after saving Lot. What started as the destruction of Jericho ended only after the saving of Rahab and her family. And by the time we get to Esther, it's not about the annihilation of a people group, but about killing and destroying their enemies. In a city that was likely habitated by tens of thousands of people, only the 800 enemies of the Jews were destroyed. So what does this mean for us today? God's instructions to annihilate the Amalekites is only one piece of many in Scripture that I can get uncomfortable and frustrated with. It can be so tempting for us to turn a blind eye, to say, oh, I don't like that part. I'm just going to set it aside. I'm going to strike it out, either literatively or figuratively. I'm going to just ignore those problem passages. But to do so is to create a God of our own making. It's fashioning a golden calf when we could be approaching the God who leads us with a pillar of fire by day and cloud by night. I said that backwards. You guys know what I mean. <laughs> Here's the thing. I want to love and worship God for all of who he is. Because all of who he is is downright amazing. I don't want the God that I like, the God I'm comfortable with. I want the true, living God. And I want to have my worship be enveloping all of Him. And when we lean into these challenging passages, we find that there's a facet of God that is most attractive. And we would have missed it if we would have turned that blind eye. If you haven't already come across passages in the Bible that make you squirm, keep walking with God long enough and you will. <laughs> I'm seeing some nods. (laughs) And when you do, lean in. Because it's in finding who God is in the midst of those difficult passages that brings that true intimacy that we all long for. Love Him. Worship Him for all of who He is. He cares about your individual heart so much. Return that and care to know all of him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for showing us a piece of yourself and how it's not just in the New Testament,